Well, hi, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, my name is Ryan, if you don't know me, and I'm excited to kick off this June series talking about habits. Habits. So uh, let me just first uh, kind of clear the air and, and let you know what we're not talking about. So when, when we're talking about habits, what we're not talking about is self-improvement. So if you like Google habits, uh, what you'll find is a lot of pictures of people in pristine houses with really expensive like workout clothes and they'll be meditating, you know, peacefully or they'll be like smiling, you know, because they're up early and they're like, they live perfect lives. We're not talking about self-improvement when we talk about habits. We're also not talking about what we often talk about in kind of the Christian church world when we talk about habits, which is spiritual disciplines, which would be like the disciplines of prayer, fasting, reading scripture, serving, tithing, all those kinds of things. Although that is definitely a part of it. Uh, What are we talking about when we talk about habits? Well, what we're talking about is waking up to these invisible routines that shape our lives. Invisible routines that shape our lives. Habits are uh, the way that, like, the, that our brain makes life easier for us. So if you've ever um, left work and you know, driven home and you get home and you open the door and you're, suddenly you, it dawns on you like, you had no idea how you got there. Like you don't remember driving at all. Uh, That's a habit. That was your brain taking all this muscle memory of driving home and putting you on autopilot so that you could listen to music or talk to your mom uh, or whatever, you know, on your commute home. You didn't have to think about driving. That's that's what habits do. Or maybe um, you've had this moment where maybe you're going to your local pick and save, I mean, local grocery store, and you see that end cap that has the little Debbie's treats on it, and you grab a box and you buy it, and then you hide it from your wife in your car so that she doesn't know your disgusting eating habits. Not that I would ever, ever do that, but that can be a habit as well. Habits can be good, habits can be not so good, but habits are powerful because they are the, the invisible routines that shape our lives. And, they, and it's not just personal, uh, they can be corporate as well. So uh, churches have habits, uh, nations have habits, and cultures have habits, and they shape the world. Uh, Annie Dillard, who's a writer, says, what you do with your days is what you do with your life. Uh, habits researcher Wendy Cook uh, tells us that 40 to 45% of all the decisions that you and I make every single day, we make automatically, meaning they're not actually decisions at all. It, we're just responding to our environment and responding to triggers and following these cues in order to get you know, some kind of reward. And we do that again and again and again. And if, we, if you want to change your life, you have to change your habits. And uh, it's also true corporately. If we want to change the world as a church, which that's a part of our mission, we want to see the power of the gospel transform lives, renew our cities, and change the world, we have to look at our habits, our routines, those invisible things that we do every single day. And so we're we're walking alongside uh, James, 
James, the, the writer of James in the Bible. And he's a great companion uh, for this conversation on habits because he is all about helping us connect our, um, our faith, which is about what we believe, to our everyday lives. In other words, he's all about habits. And he, um, he kind of gets up in our grill about it, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, and and he, he gives us the bad news first. He's really, really comfortable and okay with giving us bad news. Uh, so, um, but but it, the bad news actually is good news. So look at what he says in uh, just kind of opening up in his letter uh, to, to Christians way, way back. He said in uh, James chapter one, verse two, consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Trials, what they do is they uncover they uncover the patterns of our life. They uncover our habits. And he says, consider it joy, even though it may look ugly, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. In other words, when you examine your life, you examine your behaviors, that will allow you, it will free you up to be able to change those so that for the long haul, you and I can grow to be more and more people of love or people like Jesus. That's what he says in verse four. Let perseverance, let your habits, let your routines that you do every day finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. In other words, so that you and I can become people who are like Jesus. Because the more we become people who are like Jesus, the more we can change the world. I mean, imagine Imagine if everyone in the church was someone who is mature and complete spiritually, physically, emotionally like Jesus. That's God's vision for us. And if we want to change our lives, we have to change our habits. And and here's James. We're going to open up to James uh, chapter 2. He's not shy, so this is the kind of warning for you. He gets up in our grill. He gets in our business. He pokes around and looks at, like he forces us to be honest and look at our behaviors and really get real about the disconnect that most of us, all of us experience between what we say we believe and what we do, which shows what we actually believe. And an interesting uh, piece of trivia is that James is the bossiest book in the Bible. That's right. So scholars have done the math. They look at the number of imperatives or like instructions or commands that all the biblical authors uh, give. And James, get this, has the most imperatives per sentence ratio of any biblical author. So this is going to be super fun these next uh, several weeks. And I'm excited to get into this with you. So, uh, before, before we can focus on our habits, what we have to do is address this very real issue. Because what happens when we talk about our, our lived behavior is it can create a lot of guilt and a lot of shame, uh, sometimes regret, and sometimes discouragement and apathy. So before we dive in and talk about habits in the way of Jesus, we have to step back and get in the right mindset. Uh, because this is not about what we should do or should have done. This is about what we can do right now, which is the title of this message, Do What You Can. Uh, so to set us up, uh, there's a story um, from James Clear, his book, uh, Atomic Habits. is a great book. He tells a story of British cycling. 
So if you're a cycling fan, uh, you know British Cycling is kind of the, the governing agency over British like Cycling Olympics and the Tour de France team, all that kind of stuff. And so get this, from 1908 to 2003, so almost 100 years, British Cycling was this shining example of utter mediocrity. They never won a single gold medal. Uh, sorry, they, they won like one gold medal in, in the Olympics. They didn't win a single Tour de France, um, uh, you know, medal. Uh, there were like, there were no brands that wanted to support them. Like no bike companies wanted to put their name on the British cycling team. No thanks, you know, let's not find someone who finishes 20th, you know, in the race. But then it all changed when they hired a guy named uh, Dave Brailsford. Dave Brailsford. So his idea was not to look for this one kind of turnkey strategy that would change everything, you know, in one fell swoop. What he and his team did was simply, they looked at, at where they could make these small, doable, realistic changes to their team. So they looked at things like their bike seats, how can we make it just a little bit better, a little bit more efficient? They, they uh, gave their cyclists heated shorts because, you know, muscles perform better if they're at just the right temperature. Uh, they would like rub alcohol on the wheels just to give them a slightly better grip. Uh, they talked about paint. So they painted the inside of their trailer where the bikes were stored like a pristine white so that they could see all the tiny little specks of dust or dirt that would have a, a tiny effect in you know, slowing the bikes down in the race. And they did this for five years. They did what they could do. And it ended up having a tremendous impact because in 2008, they went to the Beijing Olympics and they dominated cycling. They won seven gold medals, which was like two thirds of all the medals uh, available. Isn't that crazy? And like none of these shifts by themselves helped very much at the most, maybe like 1%. But what they did is they compounded to make a huge difference. And that's, that's the incredible power of learning to do what we can. Learning to do what we can. And this is especially true when it comes to being and becoming like Jesus. Becoming mature, joyous people of love for God and for others. We have to do what we can because most of us, most of us, what happens is we get stuck. We get stuck in a mindset of should. Man, you know, talk about my habits. I should be better. And there's this guilt and there's a sense of obligation. And we say things like, man, I should be more self-disciplined. I, I should be more patient. I should be more generous. I should pray more, read my Bible more, tithe more, all that stuff. I really should get over this sexual addiction that I've been struggling with. I should drink less alcohol. And there's a sense of guilt and weight and obligation. And that's, that's not biblical at all. The sense of should. You know, and for some of us, you know, there's an even more powerful sense of like, I should have. You know, we talk about our lifestyles, it, we, where we go is, man, I should have been better way back then. And, and it's all about missed opportunities. I should have spent more time with my kids. I, I should have been more serious about my faith when my marriage uh, was still there. And now it's too late after the divorce. There's a powerful 
ruts that we can get stuck in. And biblical, uh, the biblical approach to looking at our habits is not what we should do or what we should have done. It's what we can do right now. So, with all that said, let's open up to James chapter 2, verse 14. James chapter 2, verse 14. So James writes and he says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, um, Faith by itself, it is not, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. This is the close the Bible ever comes to calling you an idiot. <laughs> you foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith is without deeds? That faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, not by faith alone. In the same way, verse 25, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. If you don't remember that story, it's okay. We're going to come back to it. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So what James is doing in this whole conversation about, okay guys, you know, uh, becoming like Jesus is learning to incorporate the habit of doing what we can. What James first wants us to recognize is that there's a huge difference between phony faith and real faith. He says that phony faith, uh, first of all, that there are, um, well, he shows us what it looks like to have phony faith. And, And the first thing he wants us to know is that phony Christians, they wear all the right labels, they have all the right labels. Uh, in verse 14, uh, he said, what good is it, my brothers, if someone claims to have faith? In other words, what he's talking about are people who are in church. People who are like, they call themselves Christians. They say, man, I was raised in a Christian home. I did you know, catechism or I was confirmed or I was baptized like I'm in the club. And for those phony Christians, their faith is all about the label and their tradition and just kind of belonging to the right group. And and then he says, phony Christians always have good intentions. Like phony Christians aren't jerks. They're usually great people who have the best intentions. Uh, In verse 16, he said, uh, they'll say things like, go in peace, be warm and well fed. And, And back in the day, that was a culturally respectable way of kind of being nice and polite, but excusing yourself from having to actually do anything about the person who is in need. For us, it would be kind of like saying, man, I hope things work out for you. Uh, You know, I'm gonna send you my thoughts and prayers, except you're not actually thinking or praying about them. Or, you know, I wish I could help, but, and 
and then your reasons become excuses. It's slacktivism. You know, activism is uh, when you act, like you do something on behalf of someone else. Slacktivism is when you maybe, um, you, you know, hit the heart emoji or whatever on social media uh, as a way of excusing yourself from having to do anything about it in real life. Phony Christians, um, they have great intentions. Phony Christians, they sound legit. They, they really do. Verse 19, uh, James said, you believe there is one God? Good, good. Uh, that belief that there is one God, that was core to like the Jewish faith that these, these, the audience that James was writing to had. That, that was uh, a quote from Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. It's the, it's the Shema. It's what they would pray and recite every single day. The Lord, uh, the Lord is one, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord with all your heart and soul and strength. Like, like good Jewish people and, and early Christians, that they would recite this stuff all the time. And, and like people who are phony Christians and their faith is phony, they'll often quote scripture or allude to it. You know, I, I think some of the favorite verses that I hear are like, you know, judge not. Man, just, I don't wanna judge because Jesus doesn't judge. You know, or like um, God is love or I mean, people will talk about like they're all about love of neighbor and, and it sounds legit, it sounds great and what James is saying is it's more than a doctrinal thing. It's like real faith is more than just a head thing. It's more than just having the right understanding. He says even demons, demons have some good theology. Like demons believe the Shema too. They'll, they'll recognize God as, as who he is. You know, demons, they know all the worship songs on your and my favorite playlists, but it doesn't make a bit of difference for them. There's more than a head thing. And, and James goes on, he says, phony faith can even feel legit. It, it can sound legit. It, it can be like, you know, you have all the correct answers. It can even feel legit. It can give you all the feels, you know? Uh, in verse 19, James said, even the demons believe that stuff and they shudder. In other words, they have an emotional reaction, a profound religious experience, right? And, and Christians, phony Christians can do this too. We might cry in worship, might watch a Christian movie and go, wow, that was awesome. Or hear a, you know, a, a sermon and feel so inspired. You have all the, the feels and you have goosebumps. And, and James is saying, even demons have an emotional reaction to God. That's not what real faith is. So how do you know? How do you know if your faith is phony? Well, James says, well, you'll know it's phony if it makes no practical difference in your life. No tangible difference to, to people around you who are in need. He says it, it's no good, it's useless. It won't save you. It, like, you'll know it's phony if there's a disconnect between what you claim and, and the way you live. Now, um, one of my favorite internet rabbit holes, <laughs> you have favorite internet rabbit holes, right? Um, so one of my favorite things is just to, you know, if I'm tired or bored or whatever, go on YouTube and just like search um, security camera, you know, foibles or whatever. I don't say foibles. Where did that come from? Yeah, you know, like mistakes or, or uh, whatever. And, and you get all these great videos of 
like delivery people who are like carrying a pizza and they like trip and spill pizza all over. And yes, your heart breaks for those delivery people, but it's kind of funny, you know, or, um, you know, those, <laughs> those uh, like cats who are like suddenly spraying, like they're, they freak out and they, you see them flash across, like all this funny stuff. And I'm so grateful that we live in a time where people willingly put cameras on their front steps and porches and they let us enjoy, you know, the mishaps that they experience every day. If that's you, thank you. What a gift you've given to the world. But let me ask you a hard question. If, if an outside person were to look at security footage of your entire life, not just kind of your silly mishap moments, but every moment, all, all the moments, what would they see? Would, would they see uh, a practical, tangible difference? So I'm talking about you, if you claim to be a Christian. Would they see in you uh, a practical, tangible difference between you and any other kind of self-respecting, halfway decent human being who doesn't claim to be a Christian? Or, or would it be indiscernible? So this isn't, this isn't about guilt, right? This is not about what we should do or what we should have been doing. This is not about shame. So let's not get stuck in that should mindset. But before we begin to do what we can, what James wants us to realize is that we've got to do some honest self-reflecting. We've got to look at what we do as as the, the litmus test for what we believe. I think that's what James is saying here. Any honest person who genuinely loves God, who genuinely wants to become a person of love is gonna have to admit that, yeah, there is a disconnect between my faith, my beliefs, and my habits, my routines. And God isn't just looking for people who have the right labels, who, who uh, have the right intentions, who have the right thoughts, who have the right feels, what he's looking, are for, he's looking for people who are filled with the Spirit, who, who are embodying Christ on earth. James said in verse 26 that faith without works is like a body without a spirit. I mean, think about walking up to a coffin in a funeral and seeing the body there. Um, uh, a number of years ago, my grandpa Thompson uh, passed away, and there he was. He was there with his big white beard and his, his uh, cabbie hat that he always wore laying there. We didn't hear his voice. We didn't see him breathe, you know. He was just still. He was lifeless. And I remember my daughter, Ivy, she was three at the time. She was kind of grappling with what she was seeing. And, and um, you know, we taught our kids to always call people Mr. and Mrs. And, um, and she knew his name was uh, Grandpa Thompson, at least to me. So she walked up and she was like, can I go see Mr. Grampson? It was so cute. But I wonder, I wonder how many of us in our Christian lives are kind of like a body in a coffin. You know, we're, we're not experiencing the life we were meant to experience because phony faith is when we try to be Christian without Christ. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. So, Now, James gives us these two stories to show us what real faith looks like. 
And, and what he says is that uh, real faith is a, a life lived in love for God. That's the first thing, and love for others. So what does real faith look like? First, real faith loves God, loves God. And then he tells a story of Abraham, or he alludes the story of Abraham. So Abraham, uh, for those of you who are not familiar, Abraham was chosen by God to start a family that would partner with him to bring about uh, God's justice and generosity and goodness and kindness and peace all over the earth. He, was, he blessed Abraham so that Abraham and his, his descendants would be uh, the embodiment of God. He, they, they would bring about God's blessing all over the earth. Now, part of that story was Abraham and Sarah were super old and they were infertile. So they never had any kids and God had promised that they would have a son, but it hadn't happened yet. So Abraham took Hagar um, and he impregnated her. Now Hagar was one of his like little like servant girls and he impregnated her. Not a good idea by the way and just because the Bible describes things doesn't mean that it's saying that that's what we should do. Just a little uh, interpretation tip there. Uh, and, and you know, it didn't work out very well. Um, God said, no, that's not the way we do things here in my family. Uh, no, I, I'm going to deliver to you the promise, uh, you know, through a child between you and Sarah, the wife of your marriage relationship. And, and miraculously, it happened. And Isaac was born. And Isaac's name means laughter because let's be honest, sometimes God's plans are crazy and they make us laugh. And then God does this crazy, crazy thing. Isaac grows up a little bit and he's old enough to walk and talk and God tells Abraham to go to the top of a mountain and get this, sacrifice Isaac on an altar, to kill him on an altar. And if you know the story from Genesis 22, Abraham does it. I mean, he doesn't actually go through with the sacrifice, but he goes, he takes all the steps it takes to get there. Now, we, we could do a whole message just on this because a lot of us, this is where we check out. We're like, that's weird. Why would God do that? Is, is this like some sort of hazing ritual for Abraham or whatever? Was he trying to, you know, see how, how insane Abraham would be? Like, uh, what kind of father would do that? And, and so, we don't have time you know, to get all into that, but if you read the story carefully, what you'll see in, in Genesis 22, verse five and verse 18, Abraham clearly knows that God isn't actually gonna have him carry out the, the, the killing of his son. Like he is very confident about that because that's not what God is all about. What God was about was letting Abraham uh, act out what God would later do with his own son, Jesus Christ, as he uh, gave him up for us as a sacrifice, his beloved son on the cross. And, and what we see is that Jesus, Jesus, now looking back, we can see that Jesus is the son of promise who willingly gave up his own life on the cross so that we could once and for all know and truly trust this God who was inviting us into a life of love. Now, we, we read in, uh, uh, in, we read in verse 23, James chapter two, that Abraham believed God and it was credited, credited to him as 
righteousness. And here's what this means, you guys. It means that, that real faith begins with this deep conviction, this belief that f- sets us free to obey God out of love for him. Why? Because he's loved us first. He's given everything to us. And that's where doing what we can has to start. Has to start with a rootedness in the love of God. But it doesn't stay there. It moves beyond that because real faith loves others. Real faith loves God, but real faith also loves others. And here's where James alludes to this other story from the Old Testament. Uh, The story of Rahab who was a prostitute. She was a sex worker. So here's the story. Israel is advancing through the wilderness. They've been there for 40 years uh, as God has been preparing them to move into the land that would become kind of their center of operations for God's renewal project, his, his project of creating a people who are generous and just and kind. But there are obstacles on the way and one of those is this giant uh, military base called Jericho. It's this huge city, terrifying to behold, well fortified. And so uh, the Israelites send these two spies in through the window and they happen to go into the home of a sex worker named Rahab. Now imagine her surprise. These two dusty, kind of deadly, strong looking, clandestine Israeli spies. But get what she did. She, in that moment of fear and tension where she could have called out for help. She could have turned them in. Instead, what she said, and you can read about this in Joshua chapter two, I know that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the one true God. And so instead of turning them over to the, to the police, she hid them on her roof. She took them up, up the ladder, hid them on the roof, and covered them with, with straw and whispered, like, I know. I know your God is the one true God. Would you please help me? Help my family. We, we don't want any part of this uh, people who are standing in God's way. And, and it, with Rahab, what we see for her, she was considered righteous. A, a pagan sex worker was considered righteous because of how she like, acknowledged her allegiance to the one true God by protecting his people by laying her own life, by putting herself and her family even at risk for the people of God. And guys, that's, that's what real faith looks like. It looks like a love for God because of what God's done for us. It looks like a love for God's people because we acknowledge that, that God is the true God. And Paul the Apostle, he's another New Testament author uh, in Galatians chapter five. He's writing about this and he calls this kind of love, he says it's, it's faith expressed through love. And what he says is if you claim to be a follower of Christ, it's the only thing that counts. It's the only thing that counts. Real faith expressed through tangible, practical acts of love to God and others. It's a life that is not stuck in the should or should have mindset. It's a life that's free to begin to do what it can in response to the incredible love of God. So as we wrap up, just, just three, three ideas here. Because we're called, I think, by this passage to do what we can. But how? 
How do we do what we can? Well, um, James gives us this real life scenario in, in verse 15. I don't know if you caught it. He said, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. So here we have someone who's underclothed and they're underfed. And I don't know if you've ever met someone like that, but there are three things that we can do. First, we can take notice. We can take notice. Second, we can resist platitudes. And third, we can accept responsibility. We can take notice, resist platitudes, and accept responsibility. So the first thing that we can do is is just take notice. You know, when you encounter someone who is in need, especially if they're in the body of Christ, lean into that. Use your imagination. You know, one of the toughest things that a person who is in crisis could ever hear, and and I know this is well-intentioned, but I've heard this over and over. It's been said to us, uh, and and it it actually hurts. It's when, when someone says, man, I can't even imagine what you're going through. Now, I don't want to get too heavy on that. I know it's well-intentioned. But what that, what that sounds like is, I don't want to imagine what you're going through. Your pain, your crisis, why don't you keep it over there? You know, I, I don't really want to step in and spend a lot of time in that because that hurts, and it does hurt. But doing what we can means that we start to take notice we start to think, we, like we put ourselves in their shoes. We think about what is it like to suffer? What is it like to be in pain? What is it like to experience shame and vulnerability? What is it like to be exposed to that kind of anxiety and fear? And, and we take notice not just of their situation, but ours. What do I have to offer them? You know, if, if they're experiencing shame, can I offer the dignity of inviting them and, and spending time with them. If their experience, if, like if they need protection, if they're, you know, it's a child and needs protection, can I offer that protection? So we take notice. The second thing is we resist platitudes. And we already talked about this a little bit. You know, we're, this is kind of how it goes, you know, at church. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. And then we part ways, you know. And, you know, Again, I don't want to be too like, heavy-handed on, on stuff because this is appropriate for most of what we do in culture. Like if, if all of us were really honest about where we were, man, we would never get anything done. But what if, what if Christians became known as a people who were safe? A safe to, to let them know how you're really doing. What if church became a place where we could really tell people, you know what, I'm not okay. I need help. What if, like, what would it look like for you and I to do what we can and grow into people who no longer say, hey, let me know if you need anything, as if it's their job to tell us what we can do to help them? But instead, we said, what do you need right now? Here, here's how I can help. So we, we, uh, we take notice and then we resist platitudes. And the last thing is we accept responsibility. We accept responsibility. So the thing I love about James is he keeps using family language, brothers, sisters. He's talking about the church through the lens of a family. He's using family language, which means that, you know, when we gather as a church, that what happens to you is happening to me and vice versa. 
And accepting responsibility simply means that we don't see serving one another as this kind of obligation or this duty. We don't see serving one another as kind of this high and holy call for a select few of like special ops Christians, but that we see it as something that we're all, we, we all are to be about because that's what God has done for us. So what can you do? How, how can you start to do what you can this week? Let's pray. God, we're humbled at your love for us, expressed beautifully through your sacrifice of yourself on the cross. And God, I pray that, uh, that, that starting this week that you would help us to do some honest gut check self-reflection, not as a way to bury ourselves in guilt or in should haves or whatever, but as a way to set us free to begin to become uh, people of love, people who are loved by God and who reflect his love to you and to each other. God, I pray you would help us do that in Jesus' name, amen.